want to look at verses 34 through 42 this morning. I was uh, talking to Janie about uh, children's moment, you know. That's what I always say. Saturdays, it's, it's one more thing here. It's like, when, what am I going to say to the children on children's moment? I said, yeah, this is exciting. I'm going to talk to the, the kids about Christ brings division. <laughs> Well, you know, I ought to keep this on an understandable level for the kids, so I went a little different direction there. But uh, for you adults, uh, Christ brings division. That's, that's the title of the message here this morning. Uh, Matthew 10, 34 through 42. Lord, give me grace to teach accurately and clearly, and uh, just may the Holy Spirit have his way as the word goes forth this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Matthew, and the theme is Christ the King. We're in chapters 8 through 10, finishing out that section this morning, the authority of the king, and strong emphasis on the authority of the king throughout there. There's really two twin truths related to Jesus Christ that we must believe. We must believe on him as our Lord and as our Savior. And the one cannot be divorced from the other. I'm a very strong advocate of Lord and Savior. Uh, much of the Gospels, in fact, develops this whole theme of Christ's lordship before we get to the cross. In fact, Christ coming as the Messiah, the first point of emphasis is that he is the king. Uh, the Messiah king who is here to present the kingdom. And then, of course, building on that, we see the Jews rejected him as their Messiah, and he goes to the cross, which, of course, was in view all along as far as the sovereign plan of God. But Christ must be received as personal Lord and personal Savior. We're talking about in children's moment. As our Savior, Christ died for all of our sins. He was buried, and then he rose again as Lord over all. The resurrection declares him to be the son of God. And a true saving faith, as seen in Romans 10, believes on Jesus as the risen Lord. I mean, and it's very personal, like doubting Thomas when he came to say, my Lord and my God. Jesus says, Thomas, you have seen and believe. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. This is a minor point for a lot of theologians out here today, but it's a mega point in the Gospels. And Jesus is really going to hit this hard this morning. If you have a problem with the Lordship of Christ, you're going to have a problem with the message this morning because that's the whole point that Christ is making in this text as we work our way through it. Well, John the Baptist came as the forerunner of the Messianic King, preparing the way for him by calling the people to repentance. The way into the kingdom is through repentance. There isn't going to be anybody in the kingdom that hasn't repented. Jesus began his public ministry with the very same message, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was presenting the kingdom on the condition of repentance. So Jesus was the promised divine human Messiah who came as king, presenting the kingdom to Israel on the condition of repentance. In the process, he had 12 disciples that he authorized to be apostles. Apostles. Very unique in terms of their calling. As apostles, they were Christ's unique authoritative representatives who were also empowered to go and do kingdom miracles. Thus, the ministry of Christ and his offer of the kingdom with evidence of kingdom miracles was expanded and extended through the apostles. That's what's really happening in the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
But here is the thing. Repentance demands that Christ be accepted on his terms. Which is who he is as Lord and Savior. Now, easy believism kind of wants to turn this around and we can kind of accept Jesus on our terms and just kind of live any way we want to. It doesn't square with Jesus. Matthew 8 and 9 over and over emphasizes the lordship authority of Christ with the issue being faith in him. As we move into chapter 10, we see Christ giving apostolic authority to the chosen 12. And as we do so, uh, do so, we see that there are two side-by-side emphases that go together. Christ emphasizes the power they would have over disease and demons. But he also emphasized their ministry would involve, you ready for this terrible word? Persecution. They go together in the ministry and lives of the apostles. Now you say, well, I'm all about signing up for the first part. The power, bring it. But I don't really want to sign up for the persecution part. You know who you would be if you really go fully with that thought? Judas. Judas. It was only when, you know, like Christ is talking about dying, that Judas says, okay, this gig is up. I might as well get out of it a few shekels. He was there for the kingdom. The power was great which he too, as one of the 12, was authorized to uh, perform. Christ then goes on to show that this experience of persecution is to be an expected reality by all those who are true followers of his. And you will be tested as you go along to some extent, in some way, some form or fashion. In fact, it becomes a test as to who is a real, genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And belief is a real, life-changing reality. It's a life-changing reality in terms of the allegiances of life. We're dead to the world, we're alive to Christ. As Paul would say, I'm crucified to the world. Uh, I'm dead to the world, and the world's dead to me. Well, Christ specifically told them in Matthew 10, 16, that he was sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Yet he told them three times in that same context not to fear, as seen in verse 26, 28, and 31. Persecution is a testing reality. It shows who is real and who is not, and it is our faith that sees us through. And Christ drew the lines very sharply. In the context of persecution, there will be those who confess him before men. And he, in turn, will confess them before the Father. And there will be those who deny, that is, disown him before men, whom he, in turn, will disown before the Father in heaven. Two main categories that he presents in verses 32 and 33, as we saw last week. Well, Christ then drew the lines so plainly, that it is very hard to miss the nature of the commitment, what I would call a saving faith commitment, that he was calling for. And clearly, it is a discipleship commitment. As alluded to in verse 25, where Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher. Now, I want to argue strongly, and here's where the rub comes in amongst uh, even evangelicals. 
I want to argue strongly that true believers are, are you ready for this? True followers. They are true followers, which is to say true disciples. What is a disciple? A follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus is pretty clear here. John chapter 10, 27, 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow. His sheep follow him. How do you know you're a sheep? You follow Christ. You're a follower of Christ. There's so many say, well, I'm a believer. Where's Christ in your life? Well, he's really not evident there. Are you a follower? You're not a believer. If you're a true believer, you follow Christ. That's what he said. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. There's no debate here. Not unless you're ready to cut that verse out of your Bible, which I don't think you are. And what does he say? I give them eternal life. These are the ones who have eternal life. The followers. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. It is those who follow Christ who have the gift of eternal life. Now, we want to be very dogmatic and very careful here. We are not saved by following. But the fruit of true faith, truly responding to Christ's voice, is that we do follow as the fruit. That's the fruit. Which is the essence of being a true disciple. A disciple is a learning follower. That's the idea of uh, when you put it all together. A disciple is a learning follower. And one enters into this discipleship relationship with Christ at the point of saving faith. You, you become a believer. You have entered into the ranks of being a learning follower. Now, as I say, there are those who wrongfully try to separate being a believer and being a disciple. And one of the reasons they do so is because they have a problem with the text like Christ is talking about here this morning. It is so straightforward and so powerful. They say, oh man, that can't be what's required for salvation. And so they water it down to where you end up with really another gospel which rejects Christ as Lord while accepting him as Savior. I disagree. Matthew does not do that. Jesus does not do that. To be a true believer is to be a true disciple. And you only have to look to the end of the book of Matthew to see this. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Christ said the Great Commission, what we commonly call the Great Commission, go therefore and make believers. No, no, he didn't quite phrase it that way, did he? Go and make disciples. Now, he could have said believers because to be a believer is to be a disciple. Could have said it either way. Here he happened to say disciples. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So Jesus said the first thing in terms of our mission that we are to do is to make a disciple. That is a believing, learning follower. And then baptize them. The reason this is significant, you see, is because in the New Testament, the pattern invariably was to immediately baptize believers. This shows that what Christ called a disciple is considered to be a believer. Immediately. Christ did not say, baptize believers... And then hopefully later they will become disciples as a second stage commitment. He didn't say that. No. From the very beginning of true faith, Christ considered them to be disciples. 
that is followers. And therefore said to baptize disciples. You say, well, uh, the early church completely broke from this pattern of what Jesus instructed. And they baptized believers, but not necessarily disciples. No. <laughs> trying to be gracious. At that point, when they baptized them as disciples, they were already followers who, who believe in the triune God whose name they openly identify with in baptize, baptism. They've had enough instruction. They understand one God in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. And so they are identifying with that openly in baptism. They are learners. They've learned that much. They know who Jesus is. They know what he's done for them. They know him as Lord and Savior. But disciples need to grow. In faith, they become a learning follower, but that's just the beginning of a lifelong process. I don't know if you've arrived completely yet, right? If, if you are in your glorified form, please stand up. I'd like to recognize you and really observe you. No, we're all in process. And as James says, we all stumble. We all struggle. Disciples need to continue to learn and grow. Hence, after they are baptized, Christ said to continue, quote, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. There is a growth process, and in that process, disciples can get off track, fail to grow, etc. However, however, the commitment of a true disciple is made very clear by Jesus, as seen in the verses that follow. All the way through, Jesus is emphasizing what true discipleship looks like. And what he shows is that it involves a supreme commitment to him above all else. In other words, true disciples recognize Jesus as Lord. This is the issue in context through and through. Verse 34, we pick it up there this morning. Matthew 10, 34, do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wow, that's a strong statement. You see, truth unites, but it also divides. Depending on what side of Jesus we fall on. Jesus is telling us that some will accept him on his terms, true disciples slash believers, and some will not, unbelievers, unrejecting, or rather rejecting unbelievers. And consequently, there will be tension between these two groups. When Christ said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth, that needs to be qualified. In the grand scheme of things, he did come to ultimately bring peace. Isaiah 9, 6 calls him the Prince of Peace. For the individual believer being justified by faith, we have peace with God. As fellow believers, Christ himself is our peace, who has broken down the divisions between us, Ephesians chapter 2. So certainly we have personal peace and relational peace as God's people through the coming of Christ. But in context here, Christ is making a contrast between two true disciples and those who will not follow him. This is the point of contention. This is where the sword comes in. The sword represents division, conflict, or separation. The cross-reference in Luke 12, 51 clearly shows that what Christ is metaphorically depicting is this idea of division. Luke 12, 51, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, 
but rather division. And you know what? Christ is always right in what he says. Christ's first coming resulted in, ready for this, division. And there has been division over Jesus Christ ever since. Certainly as God's people, we are to be peacemakers. And Paul instructed us in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, and it's not always possible, but if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So it is not that we as believers are looking for conflict. We don't get up in the morning and say, I wonder who I can poke in the eye with a stick today, right? I mean, that's not our mission. (laughs) It's not, is it? I mean, if you are in that category, please repent. Uh, No, that's not our, we're not looking for trouble. We, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, We want to be peacemakers. We want to get along. And we try to, we try to get, we want to get along with everyone if if possible. The problem is addressed by Christ here is that the unbelieving world that is rejecting him is going to have a problem with us. You see, we're not going to agree on Jesus Christ. This is the fundamental issue of life. And that right there is the ultimate issue. True disciples will insist on being loyal to Christ above all. Now, if you're willing to say, well, Christ is one of the ways, and and I think you should have a little impact, maybe it's a great teacher, you could probably get along. They can probably get along with that and live with that. But if you're going to insist on Jesus Christ for who he is and apply that personally to your life, that is offensive. The way, one mediator, there is no other. He's my Lord. He's my, that's, that's offensive to the world. Note in the end, there will be peace on earth and Christ will ultimately bring it about. But that will not happen until his second coming. So there's a bigger picture here than what they realized. We know this as we study in the scriptures, Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4, a kingdom context where it says, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. By the way, United Nations has this verse, you know, uh, they think they're going to do it somehow. But uh, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's a future day. It's a pipe dream for this this era. It's not going to happen. What Christ is talking about, division, is what is the norm for where we live. And it will be until the time of the second coming. So in the pre-second coming era, where we live, and many others, there is this long, what I call, shaking out of history, in which people constantly face the decision on where they will stand with Christ, which is the ultimate issue. And by the way, we are the people who are presenting that decision before people. And they don't like to even have to wrestle with that decision. They don't even like to hear about it. They don't want anything that's going to bring conviction. The issue becomes this. Will they become a disciple or will they stand in opposition to Christ and his people? This will be the ongoing issue until the second coming. But in the second coming, Christ will come in power and glory to forever put down all resistance and to rule with a rod of iron. I mean, he's coming the next time as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and with great glory. And I fully intend to be with him at the second coming. And then there will be lasting peace. But not before. 
You see, right after the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, we see this issue of division introduced. There would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the devil, Genesis 3.15. As we move into Genesis 4 and 5, we see an ungodly seed line being developed through Cain. And what does he do in relationship to the godly line? Abel, he kills him. And then we pick up the godly line as we get into chapter 5, replaced by Seth. The godly line again picks up. But all the way through, we see the development of the, the, the godly seed and the ungodly seed. And of course, the ultimate godly seed is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the great representative of God's people. God... Godly Abel was killed by ungodly Cain, and that pattern continues down throughout history. There is light and darkness. There are children of God and children of the devil. There are followers of Christ Christ, and followers of Antichrist. And this relates to every sector of society. Coming to a home near you. And so Christ says, verse 35, 36, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. You say, boy, it's a terrible thing for Christ to say, and it's a terrible thing for Christ to do. It's really not that Christ is doing it. It's just that he becomes the, the focal point of issue as far as how we're going to line up with him. Are we going to be a disciple or are we not going to be a disciple? That becomes the issue. Now, these are some of the hardest verses in the Bible, I think, honestly, as a, as a pastor dealing with uh, conflicts that take place in families over this whole issue of Jesus Christ, it's heart-wrenching. They are sober words, sober words of truth that have been experienced by God's people down throughout the entire church age to one degree or another. Uh, And I can tell you, uh, even in our church, there are many family tensions over the issue of Jesus Christ. Uh, Probably not a family in some way or another that's not affected to some degree or another uh, somehow. Sadly, uh, there are many causing tensions that are often even professing Christians. But their hostility towards true Christians suggests they're not really real. But they want to claim they are. Everybody wants a little fire insurance at the end, right? Yeah. So Christ here gets right in the middle, right in the middle of the closest relationships in life. That is family relationships. It's a bold move. It's a bold move to move right in the middle and get in the middle of family. That's a bold move. Here he is. He's demanding. Are you ready for this? He's demanding to be number one. Number one. Not number two. Number one. And this is the stuff of true discipleship. Children and parents will be at odds over Christ. In-laws and outlaws will be at odds over Christ. A person's enemies will be those of their own family. All because Christ gets right in the middle of these relationships. And all because Christ demands supreme allegiance. Christ demands loyalty above all other relationships, including the closest of family relationships. That becomes very challenging. Mother or Jesus? (laughs) Mother? I love my mother. Jesus, I love Jesus too. Powerful tensions. Even Christ's own family opposed him during his earthly ministry before they came to clearly realize who he was. 
And it's in that context that Christ proverbially said, quote, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Oh my goodness, well, how the family felt about that. Matthew 10, 35, 36 is a takeoff of Micah 7, 6 in the Old Testament. Micah 7, 6, for son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and man's enemies are the men of his own household. You can see Christ is building on that principle back here in Micah. And the context of Micah addresses a time when apostasy was so strong in the land that it was affected even in the closest of family relationships, which is what apostasy does, by the way. we got a problem in America with the family. You know what the problem is? It's a problem with God. God has his rightful place. Uh, it's amazing uh, the impact that that has on a family. But right now, we have a, a divided situation, as Christ says. Christ, in effect, is saying that rebel hostility against God will be the cause of this division. Only revival in Israel will ultimately change this situation, which is kind of the definition, ultimately, of revival. As seen in Malachi chapter 4, 5, and 6, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord shows up again during the tribulation period. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Oh, there's going to be a realignment in the family. And the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. When true repentance comes to Israel, families will then align in harmony under the truth of God. That's the idea. But until then, families will commonly be divided over Christ. And such is the case today, just as Christ said. Praise the Lord, there are exceptions to this rule. Where all in the family are true disciples. But what Christ said here in Matthew 10, 34-36 is very common. William MacDonald says, one of the costs of discipleship is to experience tension, strife, and alienation from one's own family. A child is raised in a Christian home, professes Christ early in life. This is common, by the way. What I'm uh, illustrating is common. But then one day they come home and proudly announce that they are now gay or bisexual or transgender or who knows what. Suddenly there is a family crisis. What is the place of Christ going to be in this situation? Pressure to conform. Pressure to go along. We love each other. Family unity above all else. No, 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 no. Not according to Christ. True disciples will follow Christ. And he demands allegiance over family. Remember children's moment? He's above all. Jesus demands that he be Lord over family. Who's going to be your God? And he goes on to say, verse 37, he really makes it poignant. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, Christ is not saying we should not love our parents or our children. Of course we should. And the balance of Scripture is very clear on this. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, if anyone does not care for his own family, at that point he is acting worse than an unbeliever. The issue here is in that little word, more. More. Family is not to be above Jesus. And it's not a suggestion. Jesus demands on being recognized as Lord. This is the stuff of true discipleship. 
Jesus says, if anyone loves family more than him, they are not worthy of him. As seen in verse 39, this is a test of who is genuine. One must choose loyalty to Jesus above loyalty to family. And the issue is this. What or who is going to be number one loyalty? Who will have our supreme allegiance? Well, for true disciples, the answer is Jesus. John Bunyan was told that he must quit preaching or go to prison, which would result in his family being destitute. His oldest daughter, Mary, was especially close to him, and she was born blind. From his cell, he wrote these words, The parting with my wife and poor children hath oft been to me this place as the pulling the flesh from my bones. I should have often brought to my mind the hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with, should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship, I thought of my blind one, the, the thought of my blind one might go under, breaks my heart to pieces. But yet, recalling myself, I thought, I must venture all with God, though it means I have to leave you. Oh, I saw this condition. I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet I thought, I must do it. I must do it. And he did do it. Well, who could possibly make such a claim on people as to insist on being the number one allegiance of their life? That's a, that's a, that's a really bold statement. Such a person must either be the divine human Messiah or he would be a maniac. This is a godlike claim because only God has the right to demand absolute supreme allegiance above all others. And yet this is exactly what Jesus demands. One commentator translates, not worthy of me as does not deserve to be mine. To choose family over Christ as an unbroken pattern shows one is not converted. That is, one is not a true disciple. This is not characteristic of one who is a true disciple. Now, Christ was not presenting to his disciples some kind of higher level commitment. He was educating them on what it means to be disciples indeed. Lots of people claim to believe, claim to be disciples, but when the testing time comes, they're shown to be bogus. And that is a key point in Christ's parable of the sower and the soils. Uh, Note uh, the cross-references that I bring out here in Mark. Same parable, different gospels. Mark 4, 17, he's talking about those who have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. They're professors for a while. But afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, what happens? Immediately they stumble. They're bogus. This is a test. And then Luke 8, 15, but the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. That is endurance. Again, in John chapter 8, Jesus talking to the Jews. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed, but not with a saving faith in him. The context makes it very clear. They believed in a shallow way. Kind of like that, that uh, ground that uh, uh, has no root. Jesus said to these Jews who believed, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. 
And there's the ultimate issue. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. But then he says to these same Jews, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me. What kind of faith is that? Why? Because my word has no place in you. You see, there is such a thing as a bogus kind of faith that is not saving faith. A true faith sees Christ as Lord over all, and it continues, it endures. This idea of Christ needing to be number one, or to use the Bible word, Lord, overall, is not unique to this passage. There are really two key gospel passages that make the same salient point, that in salvation Christ is recognized above anyone else and above everything else. In other words, true belief recognizes Christ for who he is, as Lord, as well as Savior. Those two passages are found in Matthew chapter 10, what we are covering this morning, 34 through 39, Lord over the closest of human relationships. And then Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, Lord over the stuff of life, all other, over all other people, over all other stuff. You know the story, right? Mark chapter 10. I love this story because notice what it's talking about. Notice the subject at hand. As he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? This is about eternal life, folks. That's what this, this is discussion is about eternal life right here. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Jesus is going to the issue of who he is. Why do you call me good? No one is Good, but one, and that is God. Do you realize that in calling me good, you're really calling me God? I don't think he had a clue about that. But Jesus uh, says, uh, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He answered him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth, I'm doing good. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I like that. I love that, actually. It's not that Jesus didn't care about this guy. He did. And said to him, one thing you lack. You got one problem. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. You know, Jesus was saying, you got a God problem here. Your possessions are your problem. And you need to forsake that God and follow me as your God. That's what Jesus was saying to him. Jesus makes the issue following himself. And the issue is lordship. True discipleship is a lordship issue. Will Jesus be recognized as Lord over all or not? That's the issue here in Mark chapter 10 as well as Matthew chapter 10. Will we follow Jesus above all? That is the issue regarding the closest of human relationships, Matthew chapter 10. And that is the issue regarding the possessions of life, Mark chapter 10. These two chapters serve to show that having eternal life involves recognizing Jesus as Lord above all else. Only this type of lordship uh, commitment is a saving faith. But let me add a qualifier here. It's interesting to me that Jesus uses the word phileo for love here. Instead of the word agapao, which is characteristic, uh, that is agapao, is characteristic of the more intensive word for love. Admittedly, at points there is overlap between these two words. 
But we might have expected Christ to use the more intensive agapao, or the noun is agape. Since that word emphasizes a love driven by the will, emphasizing a sacrificial commitment. Phileo literally means friendship love and emphasizes the affections of the heart. And all believers will supremely phileo Jesus, but they may fail him in the realm of agape love. And this was the deal with Peter. His affections were all for Jesus, but he failed at agape in a big way. You see, when Jesus addressed fallen Peter after the resurrection, twice he asked Peter if he loved. That is agape. Do you agapao me, Peter? Well, Peter humbled and remembering his miserable failure, answered with the weaker word saying, you know that I phileo, you know that I love you. The third time Jesus used the the less intensive word saying, do you even phileo me? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love phileo you. And indeed, Jesus did know Peter loved him. Not perfectly, not as consistently and intensely as he should have. But Jesus knew that he loved him as seen in his response, feed my sheep. Jesus is saying that all believers down deep will have the strongest of affection for him. It might not be as agape consistent as it should be, but down deep, all true believers in their innermost soul do love Jesus. It's easy to say, I believe in Jesus, but do you love him? I suggest to you, if you don't love him, you don't know him. Uh, There are many evidences of true salvation, but really it gets to the affections of the heart. And right at the top of evidences for salvation is sincere love for Jesus. I know if you know Jesus here this morning, you will agree with me. You love Jesus. There won't be an exception amongst you. I know that's true. And you know it's true. And it harmonizes with scripture. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul says, if anyone does not love, there's the word phileo, by the way. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come. That's a strong statement. Paul, we have people that are believers, but they don't love Jesus. Well, he says, if you don't love Jesus, let him be accursed. Ephesians 6, 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. 1 Peter 1, 8, whom having not seen you love. Peter didn't say, well, I think some of you love Jesus, but I'm not sure all of you do. No, he's assuming they all love Jesus. To be a believer is to, to love Jesus. 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. Believers love Jesus. It's one of the great definitions of who is a true believer. Do you love Jesus? Don't tell me you love Je- you know Jesus if you don't love him. To know him is to love him. Certainly we grow. As I say, discipleship begins at a certain point, but then it grows and it may slip and stumble and struggle all along the way. But the affections of the heart tell on a person. It's not that true believers never fail. They do. And sometimes miserably. But when they do, they characteristically hate it. Romans 7, 18 through 22. You can truly love Jesus and yet fail him miserably. Yeah, me? How about me? Peter did that. 
After, in human weakness, he denied the Lord three times. Immediately, he was convicted to the core and went out and celebrated with a beer with his buddies. No, 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 no. He went out and wept bitterly. Why? Why did Peter do this? Because in truth, he really did love Jesus and he hated the sin he had just committed. That's characteristic of a true follower. True believers characteristically love Jesus and hate sin. That is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, quote, If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. The fruit of true faith is love, first to God and then towards fellow believers. There is a flow of thought here related to loving Jesus and following him in the way of the cross. To make the matter clear, Jesus uses the same type of cross language here in Matthew 10 that he used in reference to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, showing that there is a parallel thought in view. The same type of love commitment demanded by Christ here in Matthew 10 is seen in the commitment he demanded of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Verse 38, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Here Christ introduces the language of the cross. Of all those listening, they would have understood the meaning of the cross as representing death. You see, Rome Rome commonly put people to death on a cross in full view for all to see. It was gruesome, violent, and a degrading type of death. There is a death experience in choosing to follow Christ. Death to self and following Christ go together, and you can't have one without the other. And Christ says to those who refuse to take up their cross and follow him, they are not worthy of him. They are not fit to be classified as belonging to him. They have nothing to do with Christ. As seen in the next verse, Christ was saying that true believers are willing to die for him if necessary. They choose to follow Christ above all else, including life itself. This is the ultimate commitment. This is what Christ demands of his followers. The Holman Christian Study Bible says, The point is that disciples must be prepared to die literally and figuratively as martyrs for Christ. Charles Ryrie says, Allegiance even to death is demanded of Christ's followers. Nelson's Study Bible, Taking up a cross, here stands for commitment to the extent of being willing to die for something. NIV Study Bible, the cross was an instrument of death, and here, and here symbolizes the necessity of total commitment, even unto death, on the part of Jesus' disciples. People say, and I can hear it being said, uh, well, what about Peter? He denied the Lord three times. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. But I want you to look a little closer. Peter adamantly said he was willing to die for Jesus. Remember that? Even if all these other guys get a little spooky and they all leave you, I'm not me, Jesus. I'm all in. I'm willing to die. And you know what? Peter meant it. (laughs) Peter meant it. When they came to get get Jesus, to arrest Jesus, you know who it was that took out the sword and took off the the ear of, uh, you know, the servant of the high priest? It wasn't the other guys. It was Peter. I mean, he he meant it. He was sincere. And Jesus said to Peter, In the garden, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. But I want you to camp on that. The spirit indeed is willing. There was a phileo love there. He loved Jesus. There is no doubt in my mind. He failed miserably, but he loved Jesus. 
The point is, Peter did have a weakness lapse, but he was sincerely sold out to Christ. And then empowered by the Spirit, history records records that he did in fact die for Jesus in the end. He did as a pattern take up his cross and follow Jesus. This following of Christ does not mean we won't ever mess up. It means that down deep we really do love Jesus above all. And that we wrestle with human weakness, which we all do. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Praise the Lord for for empowerment to help us in our weakness. You shall be witnesses. Uh, There's the word martyrs. You shall be witnesses. Martyrs. To me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You see, witnesses from the the Greek root word martyrs. Martyrs is the origin of the English word martyr. It denotes someone who embodies the example of Jesus by being willing to die for what they believe about him. This is our calling. You're called to be martyrs. You say, I'm not sure I want to follow Jesus if it involves taking up a cross. I don't want anything with death involved here. I just want the life. Sorry, Jesus doesn't seem to leave that option open. The nature of a saving faith commitment is the same in all dispensations. You see, in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith chapter, we see example after example of people by faith standing for God in the midst of all manner of hostility and difficult circumstances. Moses is a great example. By faith, this is a, this is a faith issue. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, there's a choice here, a hard choice, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Moses An example. This is the stuff of saving faith as modeled by Moses. The the nature of a true saving faith is seen in the tribulation period on the part of those who will will be willing to die for Christ rather than worship the Antichrist. You say, well, I think there's a place for easy believism in the tribulation. Where? The nature of saving faith, I submit to you, is not different today than it will be then. You say, well, there's a, there's a higher requirement in the tribulation period. Really? The nature of faith? Where do you see a change in the nature of saving faith throughout the pages of Scripture? I take the position the nature of saving faith is consistent throughout. Now, in terms of uh, revelation, it's progressive. And we understand, as we go along, the truth about Christ was revealed in the New Testament. And now that becomes the focal point. But the nature uh, remains the same. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. And just to show you the same principle applies to the church age, Christ said this to the church at Smyrna, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. You're going to be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is a statement of assurance, not a statement of the ground on which one has eternal life. Eternal life is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone and saving faith in Him. However, if the faith is real, it will show in one's life. And being faithful until death is the ultimate proof of genuine saving faith. 
Paul spoke of living the crucified life in which he no longer lived for himself. Uh, this is what he said, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. There's been a death experience in my life. And it's no longer I who live. What do you mean, Paul? You're walking around in the flesh. He's talking about a spiritual experience. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. What kind of faith? Faith in Jesus as his God. You get that? I live by faith in the Son of God. That's who he is to me. That's what governs my life here. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Savior. He's God. He's Savior. That's who he is to Paul. That's what governs his life. Faith, the crucified life, and following Christ is all a package. We're saved by faith alone, but it must be the right kind of faith. A faith that follows Christ supremely. Not perfectly, but sincerely. And to further qualify this, Christ says, verse 39, He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. These are some strong words. All the way through this is pretty strong. I mean, if anybody else said it other than Jesus, I'd say, well, boy, I'm not sure about that. All the way through this entire context, Christ is emphasizing the true disciples will persevere in the context of persecution. And they do so because they have recognized Christ for who he is as Lord. Now, this is a paradoxical principle here. Lose life, find life. And this paradoxical, paradoxical principle is stated by Christ more than any other single statement he made in his earthly ministry as recorded in the Gospels. Maybe we should pay attention to this. I mean, somebody states, a teacher states something more often than any other statement as recorded. Maybe we ought to pay attention to that. I think so. Christ is making a point here that is of utmost importance. And yet, strangely, so many Bible commentaries, as I, I read about 25 commentaries in preparation for a message like this. And so many of them either just skip over it or they take to dancing. They just dance around it instead of dealing with it. And yet the hard words of Jesus are often some of the most important. The word life here is the Greek word psyche, which literally means soul. It refers to the essence of one's being. Note very carefully that Christ is not talking here about rewards. Some want to try to make the issue reward somehow. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the very soul of a person. The sense is that the person who puts his own life as a higher priority than Christ will lose his soul. That's what he's literally saying. Showing this person never truly had a genuine saving faith. But the person who loses his life for the sake of Christ will share an eternal life. Lots of commentaries get it right, too. Moody Bible commentary, verse 39, could be paraphrased. He he whose life pleases only himself will miss eternal life, and he whose life is lived for me, that is Christ, even to the point of death, will find that eternal life awaits him. Howard Voss, the meaning of verse 39 is that he who avoids death in the midst of persecution by denying Christ will lose his soul, but he whose devotion to Christ may result in physically dying for him will enjoy eternal life in his presence. Well, if this is true, and it is, it absolutely, totally destroys easy believism, which says that you can believe in Christ in a saving way, and yet it will not necessarily affect your life. Either Christ is wrong or easy believism is wrong. And I'm going with Christ. 
There is absolute consistency in what Christ is saying all the way through this entire context, emphasizing that true followers endure based on their supreme view of him. Matthew chapter 10, flow of thought, verse 22, he who endures to the end will be saved. 28, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 33, whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny. 37, loves family more than me, is not worthy of me. Not take his cross and follow, follow not worthy of me. And finds his life will lose it. Loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus started out uh, here, as we uh, have been talking about uh, family commitments. Christ is saying, I demand to be number one. And we see here that narrow, more narrowly than what I just had on the board here, note that loving Christ above all ties to death to self and following Christ, and in turn, this losing of one's life results in finding it. In the end, there are those who live for Jesus, true disciples, and there are those who live for self and lose everything in eternity. Within the category of living for Jesus, there are degrees of faithfulness. But all true believers ultimately value Jesus above all else. Certainly on some level. As Paul says in Colossians 3.11, Christ is all and in all. Well, to finish out, just a couple minutes here. Uh, Jesus started out in verse 34 emphasizing there will be division over him. And that even family will become enemies over him. But now in verses 40 through 42, he comes full circle, showing that what is indicative of true disciples is that they receive, support, and endorse fellow followers. And that every effort to that end will be rewarded. Let's read it together. Verse 40. He who receives you receives me, and him who receives me receives him who sent me. He receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Well, I have a couple of pages of notes on this, but we're out of time. So I will send it out to you as I, as I do. But uh, note here, the emphasis is this. Disciples, true believers, are, told, are, are sold out for Jesus. Jesus is the most important love of their life. They love Jesus above all else. And there will be those who hate them for it. But there is also a family of true believers that will support them. And any such support will ultimately be rewarded, which is his point. Al Martin said this uh, years ago before he died. Of course, he said it before he died. <laughs> But he, he said this in a powerful sermon called The Truth. The cross does not give us a minor shift or two with regard to a few of our ethical and moral religious values. The cross radically disrupts the very center and citadel of your life from self to Christ. And if the cross has not done that, you are not a Christian. My friend, face it. You are not a Christian until the cross has radically disrupted the very center and citadel of your life and brought you from a life of commitment to serve self, whether it's religious self, moral self, proud self, covetous self, lustful self, prideful self, unforgiving self, lazy self. It doesn't matter. What are the focal points of the reign of yourself? If you've gone to the cross... In union with Christ, it's been shattered. 
I want you in that day when you stand with me before the judge of the world to have him say, come you blessed, come you blessed. I don't want to look at you standing there saying, Lord, 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 I named you in earth. I named you before the elders. I named you before the church. I named you in prayer meeting. I named you in witness. And Lord, now, Lord, 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 did I not this and did I not that? I don't want to hear you, hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you, you work of iniquity. You were never made to be a doer of the will of God. You learned enough. You learned enough what to say properly enough to be accepted for what you professed yourself to be on earth. But now the day of judgment has come and the truth is now to be known. What will that day reveal? What will the truth be made known on that day about you and about me? Well, the Bible's clear. Having been justified by faith, we have peace. What? Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord. My question is, is he your Lord and Savior? The Bible's clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's got to be from the heart. It's a life-changing reality. Have you come? Do you know him? Let's stand and have our closing song.